0: Hey Claire, welcome back to episode 11.
1: Hi Zoe, how are you? Good.
0: Today we're going to be talking about a pretty sad article that we published over the weekend relating to the death of Richard Bilkso. I hope yeah. I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah. What can you tell us about that?
1: A friend of our Canadian editor, Jonathan Kay, passed away at the age of 60 recently um, by suicide. And Richard was a principal of a school in the Toronto district area and he was attacked as racist by a diversity, equity and inclusivity training officer during a training session. Richard's crime was to query this woman. Her last name is Ojo Thompson. His crime was to query her comparison or her conflation of the United States with Canada. Um, Richard... Uh, has worked in the United States as a school principal in the United States as well in in a city urban school and he was of the view that you cannot compare or conflate the United States' history of racism with Canada's history and for that comment he was attacked as a white supremacist and a racist and this was very distressing to Richard, for Richard, because he's a lifelong progressive And you can read Jonathan's article, which is up on our website, which goes into some of the context. Uh, Like many people who are victims of uh, unfair accusations, he expected his bosses and colleagues to defend him. But apparently his bosses in the Toronto District School Board uh, joined in the attack and piled on him on Twitter. And then his query during this diversity, equity and inclusivity training session was used by uh, this training officer as an example of white supremacy in further training sessions. So he was smeared, attacked, piled on, harassed and abused for just having a uh, rational, skeptical question, and the distress that all of this caused. Uh, his family have said contributed to his um, passing, which is absolutely tragic. And uh, I, I am so sorry for the to Richard's family, and I'm so sorry that you're you're going through this. And um, you know, and and I also feel terrible for. There's so many other people who are going through similar situations who are being unfairly attacked, smeared as racist or sexist or whatever just for having reasonable objections to something that might occur during one of these ridiculous training sessions. Mm -hmm. There's a sociologist who I admire called Jason Manning who wrote a book about suicide uh, it was released last year or the year before. It's called Suicide and he, he's not a psychologist so he doesn't look at it through a psychological perspective but he looks at the sociological context in which suicide occurs and he writes that um, suicide does often occur after a loss of status or the destruction of a reputation. So all of these incidents incidents or episodes of having our reputations attacked by these grifters, these race hustlers, they do have consequences. They hurt people in the real world. Uh, and sometimes they hurt people so much that it becomes unbearable. Yeah. And
0: anyone who's experienced this firsthand would know how horrible and isolating it is. And you really do need a really good group of people around you yeah. or else yeah, it's R- very difficult to get through we know we've published a lot of authors and yeah. academics for whom uh, yeah. this has happened and yeah we've published their stories and they're harrowing
1: yeah we uh we we published an entire volume of uh essays about cancel culture this book is now a couple of years old panics and persecutions uh it's a couple of years old and, you know, I thought that cancel culture was sort of dying down, and maybe it is, uh, but the, the distress that these episodes cause to people can last for years, particularly when the accusations are, com- are false and they impact someone's direct work life. Mm-hmm. So I've been um, subject to all sorts of accusations online, on social media, and Like elsewhere on the internet, there's been entire articles written about me being, um, you know, a Nazi and so on and so forth. But it doesn't impact my everyday life uh, in my work environment or my family environment. And my friends couldn't care less about what people on the internet say about me. But if you're someone who's an academic and you have to work with people who don't know you very well, potentially, or who... Who are, who get very um, uneasy if everyone's reputa- if anyone's reputation is besmirched and you have these kind of dynamics where if some one person is polluted with an accusation then you are polluted by proxy these sort of guilt by association dynamics can be turned really nightmarish really really quickly
0: and I think an important factor in all this is that Richard uh, was a sixty year old man. And he dedicated his whole life, to, like many men of that yeah. generation, um, to his career. Mm. And he'd worked his way up. He was principal. He was obviously very well respected. And then to have this loss of status or loss yeah. of face can completely derail any person's yeah. sense of identity.
1: Absolutely. And reputation is everything. If you're in the education system, if you're a school principal, reputation is everything. I I just find it so devastating that his colleagues and bosses did not stand up for him uh, against these obviously ridiculous accusations. Uh One thing that comes through in the stories that we published in our book is the absolute cowardice of most people when it comes to defending their friends and colleagues from unfair attacks. It's Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) un-fucking-believable how cowardly people are.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I learnt that the hard way. Yeah. <laughs> At least it was it was just in you the last year of high school. But I learnt then that people are very cowardly, mm. and if they see their status being drawn down with you,
1: yeah, most see you people, later. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's why it's so yeah. good to to have good friends as you get older, and you can mm. sort of filter out people.
1: the The other side of that is that sometimes people whom you least expect it come to your defence or sure. at least reach out. I've been piled on I don't know how many times, but every time it happens, someone reaches out to check if I'm okay that I would never have expected. Mm. People who have different political outlooks to me will reach out and say, are you okay? That's so nice. And it's um, its surprising the humanity that comes through when we go through these stressful mm-hmm. episodes. I mean, there's the cowardice on the one hand and a lot, and you find out that a lot of people you thought were your friends aren't really your friends at all cause, because they, they're not going to stick their necks out to defend you. But on the flip side is that some people genuinely have enough humanity to just check on another human being to see if they're going okay. Yeah. It's very important. So, to do. I mean, I would recommend, like, if anyone, if you know anyone who's going through something like this, a loss of status, a lot, having their reputation uh, unfairly attacked and smeared, reach out to them because it will be a very precarious time for them. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't agree with them on everything, doesn't really doesn't matter. It's just about one human being reaching out to another. Yeah. And um, yeah, we all have to be, we, we just have to be aware of how vulnerable Mm -hmm. we all are.
0: But one of the worst things about this ideology is that showing any empathy Mm. towards people like Richard, who are white supremacists or whoever they might be, any empathy or humanity shown towards them is seen to be that you are... Well, you're guilty by association. Yeah, Yeah. or you're sympathising with the the wrong side of history. And actually when Richard did speak up, he was told that it was a good thing that he was feeling discomfort and that this discomfort was obviously a sign that the DEI classes or courses were were doing the right thing and yeah so i mean when does discomfort become severe mental illness
1: yeah uh, i don't know how people put up with this honestly if i ever had to sit through a diversity training session i would walk out <laughs> there's just it is absurd and and i don't i don't i really don't understand why people put up with it It's not necessary. It's really not necessary. And if enough people just stand up and say, no, we're not going to sit through this bullshit, then workplaces will stop putting these training sessions Mm -hmm. on. It's just about people having the balls Mm -hmm. to say no. Mm -hmm. There there must be so many people who sit there feeling awkward, like, I don't know why I'm sitting here copying this, but they don't have what it takes to just stand up and walk out. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why people have to be such cowards, Mm -hmm. but it ends up with these tragic situations where because so many people just do not have the courage to say what they really think, we get situations like this where these poor individuals are piled on and attacked and and do not have enough support. When Mm -hmm. You know, the majority of people I would imagine would have Mm -hmm. agreed with Richard. Yeah, for sure. And let's be
0: honest, like why these institutions – hiring these consultants, these consultants who get paid like 300 grand a year or more. Mm. Uh, Why are they hiring them? Well, because at least in Australia, and I'm sure it's a similar situation in Canada, our institutions get these, you know, brownie points, these diversity, equity Mm. and inclusion points um, who are given out by, what are some of them? Oh, like the Australian. or...
1: Equality Workplace Index. Exactly. Yeah, there's this dynamic where, you know, there's only a tiny percentage of people who are true fanatics. There's only a tiny percentage of people who are really on board with the critical race theory, you know, the pseudo-Marxist ideas that permeate a lot of this activism. They're a tiny minority, right? But the majority... Of people, particularly in management positions in institutions and corporations, are conformist, cowardly. And have no—they seemingly have no idea of what their own value system actually is. So there's just like this vacuum, and these fanatics come in and just fill the vacuum with their insidious and pernicious ideology. Mm-hmm. But if it weren't for the, these managerial types who have got no spine and no value system of their own, these fanatics wouldn't be able to come in and take root the way that they have. Mm. Anyway, moving on to something a little less depressing. I saw Barbie over the weekend.
0: Oh, I wanted to see it as well, but I didn't end up seeing it. Hopefully Mm. I see it soon. Mm. Did you like it?
1: Yeah, I did actually. I took my little girl to Mm -hmm. see Barbie because she plays with Barbies and I was kind of, I I, I enjoyed the film, but I was kind of disappointed on her behalf because it's not really a kid's film. Okay. And I could tell that she was watching it and in parts she was like, what is going on? (laughs) Uh, it's quite um, a grown-up film Okay. Uh, and I think it probably appeals to teenage girls the most and it definitely is um, pitching towards adult women as well. Um, and there were some political messages in the film which rated a little bit but overall I found it to be very original, quite funny and um really well acted and made. I, I, I loved the direction. It was very artistic.
0: Yeah, I do like Greta
1: Gerwig's films. I think
0: she's Yeah, great. yeah. Okay, so is it supposed to be like a feminist film taking down the patriarchy?
1: Yeah, yeah, it does have a strong feminist storyline and themes. Uh, the idea is that um, everything's perfect in Barbie land and the Barbies um, congratulate themselves for uh have fulfilling all of these roles like there's an astronaut barbie a uh, president barbie you know the doctor barbie the ceo barbie and because they fulfill all of these roles girls in the real world play with barbies and grow up to be all of these to have all of these positions and have all of these roles um and uh it, there, it, there's this rude shock when the when the barbie enters the real world and discovers that actually it's much more complicated than that and a lot of girls older girls resent Barbie for being an example of sexualized capitalism and stereotypical and decorative and all of these things and I mean I won't give away the story the the end of the film but it it is quite it does portray the real world as being quite patriarchal and then the Barbies and then that Ken comes to the real world, gets some books about patriarchy, takes them back to Barbie Land and then turns Barbie Land into a, a patriarchy, Wow, which is quite hilarious. Okay, <laughs> I enjoyed that part of the film, but then the Barbies have to um, organize to take down the patriarchy. Right. Anyway, so there is a big element of, you know, complaining about the patriarchy in okay. the film. but. I think even if you you don't subscribe to mainstream feminism, I still think you can get a lot out of the film just through the humour and just through the... I mean, it's uses as a plot device. Like Mm -hmm. they have to... They can't make a film about Barbie in 2023 without it being overtly feminist. Mm -hmm. Like, come on, it's just not going to fly. So I I do think it's worth seeing even if you're worried that it's woke. If you can take that with a grain of salt, it's still an enjoyable film. Mm -hmm. However... I did see some criticism of the film, which I thought was valid. Um, There's a writer in Australia called Virginia Tapscott. Uh, She's a mother, stay-at-home mother of I don't know how many children, but more than one, a few children. She's the founder of Parents Work Collective. And uh, I saw on her Instagram... um, that she was criticising Barbie Land for having no children. And she says that this is because feminism still does not know what to do with kids. And the only kind of care work represented in the movie is a gross kind of servitude where um, the Barbies are brainwashed and and it's care work is portrayed as degrading and I think that's a very valid criticism from Mm -hmm. a different feminist perspective Mm -hmm. and I didn't actually consider that when I was watching the film when I had my kids with (laughs) me but it's true it did not portray you know had women all in all of these roles like Barbie astronaut Barbie president they had, there was a trans Barbie. There was really, a, yeah. Wow.
0: <laughs> Why am I surprised? I should not be surprised. Was, I've um, really got to see it now.
1: An overweight, but bar- like they had all of the of course, diversity. Yeah, yeah. All of yeah. the diversity was there. I even saw a Barbie with one gold limb. Okay,
0: I was going to ask about wheelchair, but Barbie. no
1: mother, no mum, interesting Barbie. Hmm. So you're getting all of this diversity, except for perhaps one of the most important vital roles, yeah, forms of diversity, which is. Mm-hmm. The, the role that women take on when we bring <laughs> the human race mm-hmm. into existence, mm-hmm. which is motherhood. And in erasing that role, you know, it's, it, it is it is a bit of a comment on our society. Like mm. is it any wonder we have such low fertility rates?
0: Exactly, yeah. So I was looking up the fertility rates in Australia and just some stats on um, the age at which Women are having their first child. Mm. So it's gone up over time, as we can, um, like, that's no surprise. So the average age for first birth in Australia is 29.7. Wow,
1: that's older than it was 10 years ago when I had my first child. Yeah. So I'm
0: about, I'll turn 29 next year. So it's, (laughs) um, I've got to get ready. (laughs) Yeah. Virginia has also written in the Australian about this, about how Mm. she gave up a career to raise her kids and how having kids completely changed her idea Mm -hmm. of um, feminism. She said she went into the birthing room as a disciple of Simone de Beauvoir and she came out completely completely changed. changed. Yeah. Um, And I was wondering if this fact that women are having kids later or choosing not to have kids or, as we know, many don't actually choose. They they put it off yeah, for a for long time long, yeah. and then have no Option. no choice. I wonder if this sort of epiphany that about feminism and about womanhood is just not happening because women aren't having kids or are having kids later.
1: It's interesting, and I, I, I don't have the answer, but... I was thinking about my own experience and I was very much into all of the stuff that Virginia was writing about in her article. You know, I, I was very resentful towards mainstream feminism for underemphasizing women's biology and under-emphasizing the role of motherhood for a long time. And then I became a mother. And I sort of had the opposite experience, not the opposite, but a different experience to Virginia. So I Before I had my first child, I was really looking forward to being a stay-at-home mother. (laughs) That was like my dream for a long time. I just wanted to be supported, have my babies, and I loved the newborn, period. I absolutely loved it. But when it came to my babies being a bit older, so being in the toddler stage, I really wanted to work. And uh, that, you know, my experience, probably a lot of women have an experience similar to mine and probably a lot of women have an experience similar to Virginia's. There's not one correct experience. But the point is, is that we need to have the freedom to choose and whichever path women choose, which whatever they do, whether it's paid work or staying in the home doing their care work, it should be respected and afforded prestige and women should be compensated for it somehow. And, you know, part of the issue is that our society sees paid work as being more glamorous than work in the home and care work. Mm-hmm. It's just she writes about it in her article that the problem, you know, there have been people who have pointed out the problems in mainstream feminism, but the issue is that care work is just not sexy. You mm-hmm. don't get marketing campaigns in, and you don't, you don't get people – Aspiring to be, you know, to be changing nappies and to looking after kids when they're sick or the elderly when they're sick, even though that is the backbone of our society, and that everything else rests upon the fact that there are people out there want doing this care work for Mm -hmm. us. It's just not glamorized and Mm -hmm. it's not afforded the prestige Mm -hmm. that other roles and other positions are. So my role as CEO of a company is afforded much more respect and prestige, even though I would say it's easier to run a company than it is to look after little kids. Interesting.
0: Yeah, because I was going to play devil's advocate a bit and say that maybe the reason it's not as respected is because it's easier. It's not. Because every woman can do it, but not every woman can be a CEO. It is mm -hmm.
1: not easier at all. It is Like when my kids were little, to have a break is to go to work. It is so intense. The work is so demanding. It's so chaotic. And you've just like the more kids you have, the more it multiplies. There is so much chaos and so, so so many demands on your attention. And the work is quite physical that going to work is like going on vacation. And I think that's part of it. I think women wanted to escape that and so work has been glamorised, careers have been glamorised. But the reality is that if you have kids and you have a career, you sort of get – you can't wind up with the worst of both worlds, so you can wind up with an asshole boss who doesn't give you any flexibility and then you get home and you have to do all of this childcare anyway. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, women are are left in this situation where they feel – like they don't know what to do they put off having kids and then it's too late and uh, it's, you know, a bit of a fiasco because we really uh, – our fertility rate is declining and we need mm-hmm. people to have babies.
0: Yeah, Virginia talks about how it's an issue with mainstream feminism, which I think we both agree with, but I would go further and say that it's maybe inherent to most brands of feminism, you know, Um uh, radical feminism. We talk a lot about that today because rad fems have done a really good job in pushing back against the um, trans ideology and gender yeah. ideology in general mm. by being gender critical feminists and mm. recognizing that biology is really important yeah. and that there are only two sexes, etc. <laughs> but I think the rad like I love what they're doing, but I think they they don't quite go far enough in acknowledging that not only do we have sex differences like basics, you know, Mm. penis, vagina, but also that our brains there are differences in our brains in that and personalities Mm -hmm. in that we have different interests. And Mm. I mean the James Damore memo sort of kicked that off, right? Yeah, yeah. And when you're talking about Barbie as an astronaut and Barbie as a doctor, that's great. And there's I think we should encourage um, kids or young girls to see themselves in those roles. Mm. but in my head I'm thinking the reality is that there just aren't as many young girls or girls who want to go into those roles.
1: yeah and and you raise a really good point. and I think one of the I think one of the biggest stumbling stumbling blocks for feminism, mainstream feminism has been this emphasis on equality of outcomes. So, You know, the the we want people to have freedom. We want people to be able to choose whatever path that is right for them. We want people to under you know have um, insight into their own personality and their own preferences, and to go into whatever job they want to do. And we also want people to have the freedom to either have kids if they want or not have kids. Um, The problem is that when we look at uh, jobs professions so if we want to look at how many women are got you know who who um comprises a profession like electrical engineering right and say you know it's 70% male and 30% female if we look at that breakdown and we say that It's only 30% female because of sexism, Mm. then we're just being idiotic Mm -hmm. because when you give people freedom, you will not get equality of outcomes because people have different preferences. Mm. And so the more we force this idea that everything has to be Mm 50-50, the more, um, we're going to be forcing people into into roles and positions that they don't actually want to be in. Yeah. And so I really wish we could move away from this simplistic attitude that everything has to be 50-50. I mean there's so many roles that women prefer doing more than men do and if we if we made it 50-50 then we would be discriminating against women. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like psychology is a good example. When I did psychology at university, it was like 80% female. And so if someone came along and said, no, this course has to be 50-50, you would be discriminating against a lot of women who wanted to study psychology. Now, actually, there is a case for there being more men in psychology because we need male psychologists. But in general, we have to move past this concept that outcomes inequality in outcomes is somehow evidence of discrimination it's not it's often evidence of people having freedom and choosing what they're actually interested in and good at and humans are diverse
0: right in all yeah. senses we're diverse in our skills and abilities and in our tastes and right. so if we're all for supporting diversity why would we not support like a diverse
1: yeah uh, diverse results yeah you know? and that's right and you know diversity in personality is also a thing like I'm my personality is not typical of a woman so Mm -hmm. I'm more disagreeable than the average woman uh which means I agree with that yeah (laughs) which means I like look I'm interested in politics and I'm interested in things like energy policy and you know I started a business which is unusual for a woman and but I'm, not, I'm also a woman and I like newborn babies mm-hmm. and I like being feminine. Mm-hmm. Everyone's different and, you know, the the optimal situation is that people can express their differences and what's unique about them in a way that is complementary to their personality. I mm-hmm. mean, unfortunately, the reality is that not everyone can find a job that suits them, mm-hmm. suits their personality. And sometimes we have to do jobs that we don't particularly like and, you know, a, bi- a big problem with feminism has been, I think, this this glamorization of career when the reality is, is that a lot of careers are pretty soul crushing. A lot of people go to work, they have to do these inane tasks that their boss assigns them, you know, they end up tired at the end of the day. Uh, They end up sedentary, they don't have enough time to exercise, they get home and then their kids come home from school and they have to do the housework and cook dinner and they have no time to themselves. I mean, it can get pretty overwhelming for a lot of people. Mm
0: -hmm. This is reminding me of an essay I wrote when I was at uni. It was on Marxist feminism. I remember reading through all the research and finding that even in industries where women dominate in terms of how many like the ratio of men to women for example care industries Mm. or hairdressing or even um, I think cooking and chefing Um, even then the people who rise to the top and get the highest paid roles or managerial roles tend to be men and Mm. from what I can understand it's because men have certain in general have certain personality traits that make them more assertive and more money hungry and more Status hungry, yeah, and therefore, yes, they're in like the cleaning industry or the childcare industry, but they yeah. go to the top to own their own childcare business. Or,
1: I think there's something in that for sure. I it reminds me of something that happened at home with my kids. Um, so my lovely daughter makes me coffee in the morning, which I'm very blessed, uh, to receive this. You know, this uh,
0: little angel.
1: Yeah. She's uh gorgeous. So she, she brings me coffee. Mm-hmm. Like I'll be in bed reading the paper and she'll bring me coffee. And then over the weekend, she decided that she didn't want to do it. No big deal.
0: She's We're on off. strike.
1: Yeah. She's on, <laughs> <laughs> she just didn't feel like it. And my, my son, who's almost 10, was like, Nora. My, my girl is called Nora. He's like, Nora, if you get mum to pay you $2 for every coffee, you can – he was like doing the calculations in his head and he could do the arithmetic and he was adding up how much she could get per week and then per month and then per year. And then he w- he he went and sh- got the calculator out and showed her how much she could earn wow. per year if she demanded $2 uh, per coffee. <laughs> but she didn't want to hear it. She mm. didn't want to know about it. She was like, I'm not – She and I had to explain, like he – my son was getting quite frustrated with her for not seeing obvious logic in his reasoning And I had to explain to him, look, Eric, Nora doesn't want to do it for money. She does it because she enjoys the act of bringing someone a coffee. Mm. She gets an intrinsic reward. Mm. She's not motivated by money. And it, it just reminded me of so much adult behavior. Like a lot of women do work because they are intrinsically motivated by the work and they get something out of it that is not necessarily what you would call an extrinsic reward such as money. And that unfortunately well, or fortunately that's just part of human nature. Some people like to do things just because it makes them feel good or because they like caring for others. We shouldn't expect that everything that we ever do – Comes with a financial reward. Mm-hmm. Although you can also make the argument that maybe we should be uh, remunerating people anyway, even if they are doing it for these intrinsic rewards. Like maybe I should set up Nora with a PE bank mm-hmm. and be donating, you know, 50 cents or whatever every time she brings me mm-hmm. a coffee because you know even though she might not realize it maybe mm-hmm. she needs to understand that her labor is worth something i don't yeah. know i mean that's yeah. just an argument but it was very interesting to see this play out in my kids see how the the boy child yes. could instantly <laughs> see the the opportunity to make mm-hmm. some cash mm-hmm. and and he could see how it would add up over time and just my daughter not being interested
0: mm-hmm. and i wonder if the government will have to start incentivizing motherhood more um, I mean, we had the baby bonus for a while. I don't think we have that anymore. Yeah, there. yeah. But um, I heard that the birth rate in metropolitan Sydney was below that of Seoul, South Korea, which has like the lowest in the birth world. rate in the world. Mm. So I think you've been doing some research into what Hungary is doing.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, I mean, the the collapsing fertility rate is one of the biggest issues faced by rich nations, all rich nations all over the world. And it's up there with, uh, you know, the militarization of China mm-hmm. and Russia's invasion of Ukraine and climate change is being one of the top three problems that governments will have to figure out a strategy to deal with because if you don't have a replacement birth rate, what ends up happening is all well, these people get old, they need hospital care, they need aged care, and there's not enough workers to pay for it through taxes. You know, because people are living longer and are potentially retired for 40 years or something before they die, that's a long time to support people either with pension healthcare or aged care. And um, governments don't know what to do about it. One solution is immigration, but that is sort of like a temporary fix. Um, And then there's all sorts of Problems that come along with mm-hmm. that, like housing costs go up, which make it even harder for people to have kids. Mm-hmm. Cultural issues. So, like incentivizing people to have babies is really important, and governments actually really care about this. Mm-hmm. The problem is they don't know what to do about it because just about every intervention that has been tried hasn't worked. The baby bonus did work, um, but it also incentivized teenagers to have. Babies, mm-hmm. which is not what the government wants. They want women in their twenties to have children, not teenagers, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. So, yeah, I mean, everything else does hasn't worked, and um, it's not just Australia. If you, I was reading a report um, produced by the United Nations, and it was going through all of the different interventions that different countries have tried, and nothing seems to work. Um, there is there are some arguments because Scandinavia does has a, have a slightly higher fertility rate than countries like Italy and okay. Spain and there is a thought that so and, and Scandinavia obviously have stronger social welfare mm-hmm. policies so they have maternity leave mm-hmm. um, and they also have um, a more of a The cultural norms are more towards equality when it comes to things like housework. Mm -hmm. So in my reading I've discovered that in places like Japan – the expectation that women do all of the housework is very strong, and women once women get jobs and careers, they just can't do all of the housework right. anymore. And so they they're just like, I can't do it. Like mm-hmm. I can't do both. Do a, mm-hmm. have a career, do all of the housework, and have kids. Kids, something's got to give. So in the Scandinavian countries, which have more egalitarian cultural norms, there's less uh, pressure on the woman to all of the household management. And then there are more support, government supports like maternity leave and childcare, which make it a bit easier. But even then, the fertility rate, I think, is stagnating or even declining in Scandinavian countries. Like no rich country has worked out a magic solution to bump up the fertility rate. But there's some interesting policies coming out of Eastern Europe and one that I particularly like, (laughs) which is Hungary are proposing to abolish... Income tax for women who have their first baby before they're 30. So I would qualify for that and Mm. I would love it if I did not have to pay Mm. income tax. And I think that's really interesting because, and like people might say, well, what if the what if women don't want to work? And that's a valid point, but Hungary want women to be able to contribute to the workforce as well. So they have a dual problem. They have a a problem of not enough babies being born, but they also have a problem of not having enough people in the workforce as well. And so they're hoping that this policy will kill two birds with one stone, more babies, and then when the babies are old enough, Mm. they're at school, women can go back to work can contribute to the tax base. And then those babies will grow up and join the workforce. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Interesting. And, you know, hopefully this policy works. Mm. Hopefully Hungary can lead by example and hopefully mm-hmm. it works. And if it works in Hungary, hopefully mm-hmm. all countries can adopt it yeah. because we obviously, like, we definitely need something. Yeah. I think there are so many
0: compounding issues, right, like at least in Australia culturally um it's seen as a good thing to go into the workforce and it's more glamorous as we were talking about but also um inflation which is happening everywhere oh yeah the cost of living yeah back in the day back in our parents generation or my grandparents generation for example a normal man like a mid-class gentleman could have a wife and like two or three kids and own his home And
1: be okay. And now that's just Uh, not the case at all. It's absolutely impossible. Mm. You're so right. And it's, uh, you know, I'm not an economist and it's, I can't explain how this has come to pass. But I'm in a upper tier when it comes to income. I can't afford to buy a house in Sydney but Sydney's where the jobs are and where the opportunities are it's really hard for young people because if you get an education a, a professional or technical education you need to go where the jobs are which means that you need to go to the big cities the high density cities it's too expensive to buy a house so you end up renting an apartment you can't have babies in an apartment because usually it's only one or two bedrooms mm-hmm. and so it, there's this
0: vicious cycle mm-hmm. there's no security if you're renting it's like next yeah. to you where am I going to be with baby are we going to get kicked
1: out yeah. and the tax rate in australia is really quite punitive towards young people mm-hmm. we're basically subsidizing mm-hmm. a lot of the boomers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh who grew up in an era of massive economic gro- growth and benefited from it i have nothing against boomers in like i like boomers in general but it annoys me when They confuse luck with their own genius. If you were lucky enough to buy a property in an Australian city like Sydney or Melbourne 40 years ago, and that property has um, tripled in value, I mean, your increase in net worth is not an example of you being super smart and a genius. It's an it's the product of luck, exactly. But
0: I propose something to the Albanese government: <laughs> if they pay my student debt, yeah. I will have a baby <laughs> right this minute. I will get my boyfriend in here. It's going. It's happening. Yeah,
1: that's <laughs> a great. That's a great idea. <laughs> yeah,
0: because yeah, yeah I, I studied two degrees, and that uh, hex debt is just getting bigger. It went up uh, like five thousand dollars mm. on the first day of the. Was a new financial year. Oh, I haven't oh, five
1: thousand dollars extra. That's Thank terrible. You. I haven't checked. I haven't checked Don't.
0: mine. Well, hopefully Anthony Albanese watches this and
1: yeah, we have policy ideas mm-hmm. to boost the fertility rate, yeah. increase women's well-being. I mean, they're quite feminist, really. Exactly, they are feminists. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Zoe. <laughs> okay.
0: See you next week.
1: See you next week. Bye.